Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast breaking down contemporary issues at the heart of religion and politics. In this episode, Yale alum Emily Judd interviews former candidate for Massachusetts Governor Bob Massey, who is also a Yale Divinity School alum. Bob's impressive professional career has spanned from priesthood to business leadership to environmental activism. In the conversation, Bob warns about the spiritual danger of money. If you do have a purpose, you can bring money in and use it as a tool, as a servant to that larger interest. But if you don't have it, it will provide that purpose for you. He breaks down Jesus' teachings on material wealth. Jesus also says that anybody who follows him has a hundred brothers and sisters in houses. And that's a different idea about material wealth. It's not that we own everything, but that we share. And Bob applauds the new generation of politicians for making climate change a priority. I've been working on climate change for 30 years. It is the single largest challenge humanity has ever faced. And my generation has done a horrible job. Bob, welcome so much to the podcast today. Delighted to be here. You teach a course at Yale Divinity School's summer study. It's Mm -hmm. titled Living Faithfully in a World Dominated by Money. Mm -hmm. How can the average person think theologically about money? Well, um, it's a complicated topic, but to simplify it as much as possible. And for those who might be interested, I, at the request of uh, Dean Sterling, I wrote a very short book called A Handbook on Faith and Money, which is available for free at the Yale Divinity website. And uh, theologically, um, we need to find a purpose in life. We have to figure out what is our ultimate set of values. And for me, that is rooted in the reality of God, uh, the love of Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit as something that is actively moving around us. And if we're open to it, enabling us to do surprising things. Um, And so money ultimately is a tool. However, it has a very distinctive characteristic, which is that if if you do have a purpose, you can bring money in and use it as a tool, as a servant to that larger interest. But if you don't have it, it will provide that purpose for you. And you will become obsessed with the definition that money provides, what you can buy, how powerful you'll be, how free you'll be. Um, And so a lot of people fall into that trap that they use money, how much they have or what they don't have to define who they are. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus invites us to do. So money is a spiritual danger among which, I mean, there are others. Um, So it's a two-part process. One is working, you know, it's working on the individual questions of faith. Where are you in your relationship with God? What is it that you hope to achieve with the gifts that you've been given? What are the challenges that you face? And how can you find support in community? And then all the way on the other side, it's what kind of structures do we build? I mean, do we make, uh, make it hard for people to succeed? Do we punish them uh, for, their, for their poverty? I mean, you know, we still blame poor people for being poor. Um, that's a that's something that goes all the way back deeply into the Bible, the hard-heartedness of the wealthy, eager to blame the poor and thus free themselves from any responsibilities. So um, having done this for a long time, I tend to see all these themes popping up at all levels. Uh, we're going to, of course, solve all of them in five afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. There's this danger today of looking at ourselves as consumers right. in a consumer culture rather than believers in an amazing universe. 
In the Gospels, Jesus says, quote, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, if you wish to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. How should a wealthy Christian interpret these teachings? Well, I think each person is called uh, by God and has to re- decide how to respond to that. Um, in the passages in, in Mark 10, uh, he is actually approached by a rich young ruler, is how it's called. And, and the, the uh, rich young ruler asks, what should I do? And Jesus gives a kind of generic answer, love God and love your neighbor. And then he says, but these I'm doing, what else should I do? And he says, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell things. Now, that isn't, I think what Jesus is doing here is very uh, clever and real, which is one of the reasons I'm always so impressed by his teaching. He's not saying the solution to everything is go and sell things. He is saying, and I think also with the eye through a needle, that the mental contortions that you put yourself through once you are fascinated with money... um, end up distorting you as a human being. And it's unbelievably hard to avoid it. Um, And, uh, you know, so that warning comes up many times and it comes up uh, again, even in the form of the positive, blessed or the poor in Luke, uh, the Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And if you look through the Bible, the test going back to Amos and Isaiah, but all the way up through Jesus and beyond, is how do you respond to the gifts and particularly to the money that you may have? And we are we are so preoccupied, not only with what we have, but what other people have. I mean, you know, not um, uh, um, not desiring uh, other people's stuff is part of the Ten Commandments. Coveting, there we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, not coveting other people's stuff. And, you know, you, we have wonderful uh, parables like the parable of the workers in the vineyard who get paid all the same, even though they work different hours, and how annoyed people get. And I always teach that parable by saying, well, if everybody had gotten their pay in an envelope and just gone home, everybody would have been happy and there would have been no arguing. But Don't because, count other people's money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And be, But because everyone was suddenly realized comparatively, then they got all upset. And that, I think Jesus says, it is very hard to love other people if you're constantly judging what they have and wishing that you had it. And I think that's true. So we need to exercise some, uh, cultivate some gen- sense of generosity and surprise and and um, and not what we, and not focus on what we don't have, but what we do have, particularly in each other. Jesus also says that anybody who follows him has a hundred brothers and sisters in houses, and that's a different idea about material wealth. It's not that we own everything, but that we share. A Boston Globe profile about you started off with the following introduction: "Quote: For nearly a decade, Bob Massey was dying. Liver disease had slowed his body and his mind." After a lifetime of battling hemophilia, then contracting HIV and hepatitis C from infected blood products, he needed a new liver. It's inspiring that one person could suffer so much physically and still have spirit, still have faith. How do you keep your faith in the face of adversity? 
Well, it's true that I have been through a lot. As you mentioned, I was born with hemophilia, which is an internal joint bleeding disease, so I couldn't walk for most of my childhood. Um, I got HIV through infected blood products. I didn't realize that for many years. Uh, in the end, it turned out that I was one of the very rare people who had a resistance to HIV. And uh, so the research from my blood and the rare other folks like me has led to a lot of progress, and I'm grateful for that. And then I got hepatitis C, and that wiped me out. And I, uh, so, and by the way, if people are really fascinated, I wrote a memoir about this, uh, which is kind of about the double helix of my activism and my medical problems, because people tended to know about one and the other, and that's called a, a, a song in the night. I'm coming up on 10 years since my liver transplant. I'm still here. It cured my hemophilia. You know, there I still have a lot of struggles. But, you know, we all have different struggles. And I really can't, I mean, I have been asked, why aren't you more bitter about what happened? But I don't know. I think my faith and my joy and my uh, willingness to keep going are a gift from God. And I all I can say is that I keep asking um to experience the endless moments of grace that we are surrounded by and that we tend to ignore or not to observe. And rather than to constantly, I mean, to do what I was just saying, which is to sit around and talk about all the things I can't do. Um, you know, it's given me an interesting perspective because in some ways, you know, I'm a 62-year-old privileged wasp white guy and benefited from that. On the other hand, you know, I had people reject me instantly because they saw my leg braces. So I'm used to what sort of uh, visual discrimination can do. And that, I think, is part of what's given me a heart to think about racism and all the forms of exclusion is because, in a way, I've been in both worlds. In 1994, you won the Democratic nomination for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. In 2018, you were a candidate for the Democratic nomination for governor of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to pursue political office? Well, and, you know, first of all, uh, I am an extrovert. I love talking to people, uh, traveling to 300 communities over more than 500 days and having the privilege to ask people, tell me about you and hearing people's stories and seeing a reality of people struggling that is not captured by the media um, and, and should be. Uh, that's all part of it. But look, the fundamental issue is that uh, just using Massachusetts as an example, uh, around the world, major countries, major corporations, major institutions, the United Nations, the World Bank are all talking about the concept of sustainability. This has driven uh, strategy for more than 20 years. Uh, this concept is absent I mean, you would think that we were 50 years ago is absent from the political dialogue in Massachusetts. The term does not come up. The governor does not understand it. The speaker of the House would be at a loss if you had him here on your show and tell me what it is. So uh, there are two worlds, or there are multiple worlds. There is the world, uh, there are concepts that are pushing the world forward to meet the ecological challenges, the inequality of wealth, the broken democracy. Those are going forward. Are those being seriously discussed by the people who run uh, the legislature and administration in Massachusetts? They are not. Now, they're good legislators that are trying to bring it up, but mostly they get crushed. So I uh, believe and still believe that it's important to have candidates who come out and say, there are all these topics that are absent. There are all these people that are overlooked. 
And if you want to prosper in 10 years, you have to get busy today. Because one of the things we are terrible at as human beings, uh, and particularly in politics, is thinking, where do we want to go? And therefore, let's commit to getting there. And that used to be part of American politics. And when America was formed, it was all about what are we going to be in 50 years? What are we going to be in 100 years? Now, if you ask people to think about what they want for next uh, year, they've been trained away. We become consumers rather than really citizens of a republic. So that's, uh, that's why I jumped in. I had a wonderful time. And I take great uh, strength that some candidates won around the country. My friend Ayanna Presley won, and uh, obviously Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and many others who are carrying that message won in some districts. It was a heavy lift to try to go against uh, an incumbent governor in Massachusetts, but I gave it a shot. I had a great time. and uh, So you're really, you were motivated to be the voice speaking out on environmental issues. Uh, well, see, I interpret sustainability as uh, they're sort of weaker and stronger. Weaker is what we tend to think about in the US, primarily environmental questions. The strong version of sustainability, if you go to India or China, or India, is that you have to meet human needs as well. So the strong version is that issues of injustice and equality merge with environmental concerns. And they, they, they either damage each other or they can strengthen each other. So, uh, but we don't even have the weak form. Uh, so um, we have a long way to go. And obviously, we now live under a president who is trying to undo uh, the United States core institutions. So we have a lot, of, a lot to do. Now, if you were president, <laughs> if you had the power to implement one legislative change in the U.S. today, what would it be? Well, it would be a version of the Green New Deal, um, which is sort of cheating because that's many things packaged into one. But look, we have uh, growing inequality to the point now where the top 1% control the great majority of the wealth. This is exactly the situation that our founders tried to get away from, landed, inherited, disparity of wealth. Um, and ultimately, many people believe, I'm one of them, that you cannot sustain a democracy if you have that kind of disparity. So we have a country and a, a, a political system in trouble. Also, uh, I've been working on climate change for 30 years. It is the single largest challenge humanity has ever faced, and my generation has done a horrible job. I mean, me uh, mostly ignoring the problem, denying it, and sort of perversely maintaining a system that is broken and yet benefits the few. So that's got to stop. And so if I uh, were president or governor, I would, I mean, my first speech would say, look, we are being invited, we are being pushed into a new era. It's not the first time America has ever been pushed into a new era, but usually we have seized the opportunity and jumped into it, and now we, uh, and we've been uh, dragged, kicking, and streaming. I want to move back to that jumping forward and to what it is that we need to do so that in 10 years, instead of looking at America right now as a joke on renewable energy, we are seen as a global leader, which we easily could be if we had the right political leadership. So is there one specific like regulation or law that is most that you think would be most effective? Well, I mean, it's always hard because these things are clustered, but a, uh, a, a rapid conversion to renewable energy would generate jobs. It would uh, free up 
hundreds of billions of dollars in capital. It would move our economy forward. It would create new industries. There are many different mechanisms that the government could use uh, if it had a, uh, a, a kind of war footing urgency about moving to renewable energy. And um, that would be uh, that would be what I would push. Well, thank you so much for joining the quadcast today. It was a great conversation thank covering you. all different topics. Sure did. Sure <laughs> did. Yeah. Thank you.